Welcome and welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to stimulate thought, expand consciousness, and encourage community. I say encourage community because I believe that the vast majority of humans are friendly, tribal animals. And when we interact in small enough communities, be it rural or in a big city apartment building, in which we know each person by name or at least by face, we are collaborative enough to sustain everyone in our community. This program brings you information dissemination for social change. Today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, it is my pleasure to bring you social documentary photographer and filmmaker, Phil Borges. For more than 25 years, he has been documenting indigenous and tribal cultures, striving to create an understanding of the challenges they face. Now, Phil has brought us a feature-length film, Crazy Wise, a documentary which reveals remarkably effective treatment approaches and a survivor-led movement challenging our country's mental health system in crisis. Stay tuned and listen to how Crazy Wise introduces mental health professionals and psychiatric survivors who see a psychological crisis as a potential growth experience, not a disease. Yes, could you hear that? A psychological crisis can be seen as a potential growth experience and not a disease. U.S. mental health studies widely cited large-scale surveys in the United States indicate that nearly half of Americans reported meeting criteria at some point in their life for either a dsm 4 anxiety disorder, a mood disorder, an impulse control disorder, or a substance use disorder. The DSM that I referenced is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. It is the book that psychologists and psychiatrists around the country and around the world use for diagnoses. Every diagnosis has a description in the book, and every diagnosis has a little number that is used on insurance forms. That's the DSM. The very number of diagnoses in the DSM has increased with every edition of the DSM. The most recent one is number five. So you get that. We started with less than 100 or so in the first DSM. We are now up to over 300 diagnoses. It leads uh, some people to think that what's happening is that Big Pharma is pushing for more categories of mental illness so that they can sell more drugs. In fact, several academicians at Harvard who were on the DSM panel were actually caught some years ago taking money from Big Pharma in order to increase the categories. And one of them actually had a radio program. He was head of NIMH. I won't mention his name right now. Who was pushing on his radio program 
a medicine for children that was being manufactured by a big pharmaceutical company that he was on the payroll of. We have a mess. Now, one of the people that's been pointing out this mess, in addition to our esteemed guest today, is Dr. Thomas Saz. Dr. Thomas Saz was an American academic, psychiatrist, psychoanalyst who served most of his career as a professor at the State University of New York Medical School in Syracuse. He was a distinguished lifetime fellow of the American Psychiatric, a distinguished fellow of the American Psychoanalytic, and he was a social critic of the moral and scientific very foundations of psychiatry. You want to take a look at his books, The Myth of Mental Illness, published in 1961, what, 60 years ago, and The Manufacture of Madness, 1970, set out some of the arguments most associated with Thomas Saz. He argued throughout his career that mental illness is a metaphor for human problems in living, and that mental illnesses are not illnesses in the sense that physical illnesses are. And that except for a few identifiable brain diseases, they're neither biological or chemical, and you can't find them on biopsy. You cannot verify the DSM by saying here in the body is where this psychological problem lives. Saz maintained throughout his career that he opposed coercive psychiatry. That's where you get given medicine, whether you want to or not. He was a staunch opponent of what's called civil commitment and involuntary psychiatric treatment. But he believed in the psychotherapy between consenting adults. Saz's views on special treatment followed from libertarian roots based on the principle that each person has the right to bodily and mental self-ownership and the right to be free from violence from others. He criticized the use of psychiatry in the Western world as well as communist states. By the way, a cousin to this is uh, when the American Psychological Association some years ago sent psychologists to the U.S. government to help with waterboarding another form of very involuntary treatment, if you will. Saz also said that drug addiction is not a disease, but it can be cured by legalizing all drugs. He criticized the war on drugs, arguing that drugs is in fact a victimless crime. Prohibition himself, he said, is the crime. He argued that the war on drugs leads states to do things that it would have never been considered a half century before, such as prohibiting a person from ingesting certain substances. Yes, we are prohibited in the United States of America from ingesting certain substances in the privacy of our own home. I think you all know that. We need to consider that. I hope when you hear that, you're thinking about that. We are allowing our federal government to make illegal the ingesting of certain substances in our own private home without children around, without anyone around. You could be alone in your home and you still could be arrested. Yes, 
Saz himself favored the complete repeal of drug prohibition. And for those of you interested in going even deeper into this topic of mental illness versus maybe what they're experiencing is something else, such as what we're going to hear from Phil Borges today, you can check out Kazmierz Dabrowski, D-A-B-R-O-W-S-K-I, Dabrowski. He wrote a book on his theory of positive disintegration. His first book was way back again, 1964, 60 years ago. For Dabrowski, growth occurs through a series of psychological disintegrations and then reintegrations, resulting in a dramatic change to a person's conception of the self and the world. Our guest today, Phil Borges, is a social documentary photographer and filmmaker who has lectured at multiple TED Talks and conferences. His award-winning books and photographic exhibitions have been seen all around the world. He has hosted documentaries for Discovery and National Geographic and directed numerous short documentaries on gender issues for organizations such as the UN Women, Care, and Research. Phil's books, and you want to look these up on Amazon, easy to find, Uh, Just looking at the covers of the books is a treat. Phil's books include Enduring Spirit, Women Empowered, The Gift, Tibet, Culture on the Edge, Tibetan Portrait, The Power of Compassion, and Photo Life Magazine. Phil's latest film, Crazy Wise, about what some call psychosis and others now call a spiritual awakening will be our topic today. I'll let Phil tell you more about the film and the making of the film. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Phil. Hi, Richard. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. My pleasure. So where would you like me to start? (laughs) You know, (laughs) it's been a long journey. It's been a, it's been a long journey, hasn't it? You've been doing this for a very long time. You know, I, I had an idea that I wanted to share with you, and I wondered if I might play just a little bit of the opening of Crazy Wise right now here on the uh, our broadcast. Oh, okay. Let's see if we can make that happen. Listeners, bear with us. Here we go. I experience screaming voices I go into almost a paralysis from fear just being absolutely exhausted and frustrated and just tired of tired of everything and just not wanting to fight every single day people don't believe how insane I am. That's the opening of this beautiful film, Crazy Wise. 
Yeah, that was Adam, who I met in 2012 while starting to do a film on meditation. It was just going to be a simple uh, exercise in finding people who have been meditating for quite a while and to just see what they were getting out of it, how it was changing their lives, their perspective. And Adam was the third person that I met. And he had such a fascinating story. He had um, had, in his words, he said, at 20 years old, I went nuts. He said, when it first happened, and I'll never forget these words, when it first happened, it was very fun and exciting. It was the first time I felt at one with the universe, where I was it and it was me. It was just incredible. And then he said, but then I kept going and I went way too far and then it got scary. So after that, he spent four years. um, His parents took him to um, the psychiatrist. He was put on medications. I think they started with Depakote. And over a four year period, he tried several medications None of them were really um, helping him much, and they were giving him a lot of side effects. So after four years, he cut off all his medications and did a Vipassana meditation retreat, which is quite severe. It's 10 days of meditation, silent meditation, 10 to 12 hours a day. And miraculously, that stabilized him and he was able to go back to work and that's something that's not recommended by anybody I mean the medications he was on any of the many of those medications have severe withdrawal issues and cutting them off suddenly can be very dangerous but for some reason it worked for him uh, in conjunction with that meditation retreat So we ended up following Adam for six years. And I mean, that was an enticing opening to his story. And I got very interested and that's why I started following him. But at the same time, um, things turned south for him. And, And within about four months, he had done another Vipassana meditation retreat and painful childhood memories came up for him and he wanted to do another interview with us. And I'll never forget that evening that he came over. He looked at, he looked very distraught, very distracted. And essentially what happened is memories of his grandfather molesting him came up. And, you know, since I've done this film, I found that many of the people who have been diagnosed or who have had a psychological crisis have some severe trauma in their background. And it, in one of these retreats, memories like that could come up. But anyway, that story went on and I got my education about the mental health system and the way it's being used uh, today mainly through doing this film. I knew nothing about it. I thought mental illness was due to a K-12 
chemical imbalance of the brain, uh, which turns out never to have been proven. There's no scientific evidence. There's no biological markers for a what we call a mental illness. Um, there's, you don't do a blood test or a spinal tap to see what's going on. It's all behavioral and, and what the person has to say. So, but uh, I, I really should back up, Richard, and tell you how I even got interested in following Adam. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, over the 25 years I had been documenting indigenous and tribal cultures, I was mainly doing human rights work. And I started to meet the healers and visionaries in these communities. And it really started off with the Dalai Lama's Oracle, known as the Nechung Oracle, uh, which is a disembodied spirit that is channeled by a, a person known as a Kutin, and in this case, it was a young monk, and um, the monk goes into trance, and what we would call it channels the spirit energy, and the Tibetan people, including the Dalai Lama, of course, rely somewhat on the information coming out of the Kutin to make their decisions. And of course, the Dalai Lama has to make decisions on, he's the leader of the Tibetan people in exile, and he has to make those decisions for his people. And he's been asked, do you really rely on the Kutin for this information? And he said, you know, if we completely ignored the Kutin, that would be extreme. But if we completely relied on him, that would be extreme as well. So they kind of use, um, almost think of it as uh, an, intuit, an intuitive approach to making decisions versus a rational approach. So they use a blend of the two. But anyway, I got to watch him go into trance while I was doing my human rights work way back in 1993. And it was just an amazing thing. And then I got to interview him after I watched the ceremony where he does his trance-like communication. And I asked him how he got got, um, chosen to be a Kutin. And he mentioned having extreme mood swings, fainting spells, um, personality changes, Uh, He had these, uh, what he called energy, um, just transference going up his spine. I guess we would call it a kundalini awakening at this point. He had, um, he was hearing voices. And, you know, he was just talking about a lot of things I would consider to be a mental emotional crisis. And so from that point, I would just open to that and when I was in I uh, started this film on meditation mainly because I had been meditating for a couple of years and I just wanted to interview several meditators who had been at it for a while 
to see what they were getting out of it. And it turned out I was working with a line producer and she was setting me up with these interviews while I was doing most of my work overseas, coming back into town, into Seattle. And so she had people lined up for me to interview. The third person I interviewed was Adam, who we heard on the tape that you played. And he had this story of um, going, what he called going crazy when he was 20 years old. And, and he said something in that first interview that I'll never forget. He said, when it first happened, it was very fun and exciting. It was the first time I felt at one with the universe where I was it and it was me. And then I kept going and I went way too far and then it got scary. And then he had to be taken to the hospital by his parents, interviewed by a psychiatrist, medicated. Long story short, he spent four years on medication and he was having terrible side effects. So he on his own decided to cut off all his meds and all at once, which is a dangerous thing to do, I've since learned, he cut off all his meds and did a Vipassana meditation retreat, which is a very intensive retreat. 10 days of silent meditation, 12 hours a day. But miraculously, that stabilized him and he was able to go back to work. And uh, that's when I met him, uh, about a year after he had done that first Vipassana meditation retreat. And when I heard that story, I just wanted to follow him more. And we started following him. And that ended up, again, long story short, we don't have time for it all. It ended up six years of following Adam while he was going through several different iterations of what we would call a psychological crisis or mental illness. Uh, Phil, how do you follow a person for six years? I mean, give us some specifics. You, you don't move in with, you didn't spend six years of your life living in his house. I mean, how did you no. literally do that? So he lived here in Seattle about oh, 10 or 15 miles away in a place called Redmond, where Microsoft is headquartered. And um, so I would just drive out to where he was staying and set up my cameras and do an interview of him. And I would interview him as he was, at one point he was living in an abandoned car and I would just show up at the car and set up my cameras and interview him and just um, stay with him for a day and film him as he did whatever he was going to do. So I continued doing that. And by the way, that was one of the things he said helped him a lot. I was there not as a therapist to help him or cure him. I was just there to listen to him and talk to him about what his experience was. And it turns out that that's one of the best things you can do for somebody in a place like that is listen non-judgmentally. You're not there to be a reality cop to say what you're going through is not true or, uh, or it is true. It, it's, it's just to be with the person and try to understand what they're experiencing. 
So well, I, I can, I can, I can I tell you, I tell you, Phil, as, as a professional therapist who's been practicing for over 50 years and has worked with people like Adam, I can tell you that you were functioning as a therapist because you were doing exactly what you just said. You were listening non-judgmentally. And that in and of itself is, is very helpful. Well, yeah, and I had a very big advantage. I wasn't paid, being paid, to, get the, to make him well, That's to right. help him get well. I was just there to document him. So I was let off the hook in terms of what I was being paid to do, or I wasn't even being paid. I was paying to do what I was doing. But um, Well, you, you were let off the hook in one regard in that you were not responsible for his... Uh, treatment but on a very human level it must have been challenging at times to see him in that condition and then pack up your camera and leave how did you handle that oh yeah yeah well you know one of the rules of a documentary photographer or documentarian is to be a fly on the wall and not interfere with what you're documenting But that became, like you say, that became impossible. And especially in one point, Adam was given, promised uh, a little house to stay in on Maui. So he sold his car, his last possession, and took a flight to Maui, got there, and found out the place. um, He was there a week, and for some reason, he had to move out. So he was homeless in Maui. And... He ended up being on the beach, being beat up by a gang, almost killed. And um, and that has a lot to do with the local Hawaiians do not welcome the homeless from the mainland. I mean, so many try to go there because you can live outdoors the whole time comfortably. Uh, But it, it. it turned out to be very bad for Adam. He was almost killed. He had his jaw fractured in half, several of his back teeth kicked out. And so, you know, I have a background. I was an orthodontist for 18 years. So I have a background in dentistry. I called up his oral surgeon who, um, after Adam called me and told me he was in the hospital and what had happened. And his oral surgeon said, you know, if we we're going to release him in the morning. And the sad fact is he'll end up back on that beach and the gang will probably come and finish him off because he's a material witness. So immediately I got a ticket to him to fly home. And, you know, there were, there were, you know, I would take him to his meetings to get housing assistance, which he finally got. And, um, so yeah, I was I was stepping in um, and breaking the documentarian's code, I guess. But mm-hmm. yeah, it was mm-hmm. it was hard not to. And but I tried to not interfere with his process because I knew very little about the process. I was interviewing experts in psychologists and psychiatrists, much like yourself. Um, was doing a lot of interviewing of other people that have gone through like experiences, but had managed to successfully navigate the crisis. 
So I was getting a lot of information and I have, <laughs> I do have a lot of information now on the whole subject because of the six years I spent with Adam and, and another woman that joined uh, as the second subject in the film. Six years with Adam. At, at what point did you stop uh, photo photographing him? And how did you come to that decision? How did it not just sort of go on endlessly? How does a photographer in a situation like that uh, know when to stop? Very, very good question. You know, luckily for us, the story arc had a happy ending. He stabilized. He got better. He um, was able to get a job. Um, he reconciled with his dad who he had a falling out with during the process. When he found out he um, had been molested by his grandfather, his parents didn't believe him. And they just said, you've disrupted the family long enough with this illness. Um, this is going to make it worse. And when he was rejected by, I'll tell you the things that turned the corner for Adam in such a dramatic way, in a negative way, was when he was rejected by the Vipassana retreat where he was feeling like he was getting a lot of help and he was rejected by his parents. Within three weeks of that happening, he just spiraled down. He, within three weeks, he had lost his job at Whole Foods grocery store. He, was, he lost his beautiful little cottage he was living in on a lake up in the Cascades here. Um, he was homeless living in his car. So it, it was just that quickly that he went downhill. And that's when we kept following him. I saw in the film how after the first 10-day Vipassana retreat, which, by the way, I've done myself um, right here in the, uh, in the Redwood Forest um, with uh, Joseph uh, Goldstein and uh, Jack Kornfeld. Oh, boy. Uh, uh, many years ago. And I saw in the film that after the 10 day retreat, he quit smoking, he quit alcohol, he quit drugs, and he really started to straighten himself out. And then I saw in the film where you actually photographed the letter that he got from Vipassana rejecting him. And the look on his face when he got that rejection, which was so dramatic. And so he did get like a triple whammy there, right? His parents rejected him. Vipassana that had almost saved his life rejected him. And then he loses his home. And, and what's important for our listeners to hear is that this kind of double or triple whammy, particularly then including the loss of a home, can have such dramatic effects on a person. I, I, I uh, worked with someone uh, not too long ago here who, who was a, um, uh, a licensed building contractor who, who had a nice home, had a beautiful truck, and was working um, as a contractor and doing quite well in the community. And then he took a job with a local business, and it was a very big job, so he had to give them all of his hours rather than have several uh, clients. And he worked for these people for three months and they didn't pay him. 
And as a result of not paying him, he couldn't make the payments on his home and his car. Now, here's a guy who was making a good living. He was making, uh, for, for our area, he was making uh, forty dollars to $60,000 a year. He was making his, uh, his payments on his car and his home and his food and medical, and he was living a regular life. When these people didn't pay him for three months, he couldn't make the payments on his vehicle, so they came and took it away. Then he had no way of getting to work, so he started missing work because when he hitched and all, he was late and there were problems. So then he lost his home. By the time I uh, met him, he was homeless. Mm. And he had gone very quickly from being yeah. a regular person to being homeless. And then he spiraled down mentally, as did the man, Adam, that you uh, followed uh, for six years. I mean, part of what's important about this story is if we have, as you pointed out in the documentary, and I did my introduction, a significant percentage of Americans who if, are not already suffering from some combination of what we call mental illness, you and I are going to describe further whether we believe this is mental illness or we, we want to call it something else. But for the sake of discussion right now, calling it mental illness, if there are so many Americans already suffering or on the on the border and then they run into some disastrous situation, such as losing their job in a pandemic. We have a major crisis that could unfold with with enormous numbers of people coming close to what you're telling us about in your film. Yeah, especially right now during COVID. Right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No, that's a huge problem. So one of the things I'd like to tie into this now, Phil, is that in your film, uh, you interviewed a, um, a very uh, internationally prominent award-winning uh, journalist named Robert Whitaker. And uh, I've had Robert on this program uh, several times, and I'm going to be having him on again in the future because his, his work is so important. Uh, for those of you listening, uh, the book that I'm referencing uh, that connects to Phil's work by Robert Whitaker is called Anatomy of an Epidemic. So tell us a little about how you came to uh, interview Robert Whitaker and what he taught you about uh, psychoactive medicine? Yeah, well, I mean, at the time, I didn't know who it was, but uh, one of the people on our team was very familiar with his work. And I was just being introduced. And it turns out that, yeah, he's a major factor in this movement to take a second look at the way we're diagnosing and treating uh, mental quote-unquote mental illness. But, um, you know, the, one of the first things that he let me know that I didn't know is there is no, and he didn't know it until he started doing his interviews, there's no biological markers that tell you whether a person has a mental illness or not. It's all, and I always thought, it was a chemical imbalance of the brain. And then you take these medications to rebalance those chemicals that were imbalanced. And no, 
there's no evidence for that at all. And, and when he asked the researchers, where is the evidence? And they said, well, there's not really any hard evidence for that. It's just a metaphor we used. And, and in our film, he comes out and says, and I was shocked by that. Here's a Pulitzer Prize nominee that's doing this impeccable interviewing and finding out, no, this thing that this this idea that's out there in the public's mind is not true uh, was a revelation to him and to me. Let me elaborate on what you just said and what you're quoting Robert Whitaker as saying. We have something that we label a mental illness. You do an autopsy on that person, you can't find anything. While that person's alive, you do a blood test on that person, you don't find anything. You do a urine analysis on that person, you don't find anything. If you do an MRI on that person, you don't find anything. So what you're saying and what Whitaker has brought to the attention of the American public and the world is that there are, are no physiological correlates for what we're calling an illness. Correct? Yes, but yet we take a biomedical approach to solving the problem. And yet we can find no biomedical markers that would be treatable. And, and this, is, uh, uh, this has been going on uh, you know, since the beginning of psychology. And the field of psychology and psychiatry was influenced by an English psychologist named Cyril Burt. And Cyril Burt did a piece of research that became so planetary famous that he was knighted by the queen. I think the first psychologist to ever be knighted by the queen. So he became Sir Cyril Burt. And here's what he did, Phil. He found 100 sets of identical twins who had been separated at birth. Not an easy task in and of itself. I got that? 100 sets of identical twins separated at birth. And then he examined all 200 of these people. And what he said was that twins who were separated at birth and they could be living hundreds or thousands of miles away, when one of them got schizophrenia, it was highly likely from a statistical perspective that the other one would also get schizophrenia. And that became a lot of the basis for this belief system that mental illness is physiological. Because after all, if the twins are separated at birth, the only thing they have in common is their genetic inheritance because they had completely different environments. So that, in his view, solved the nature-nurture controversy. It's all nature and no nurture separated mm. at birth, right? Aha. Fast forward. Sir Cyril Burt dies. Graduate students are poking around in his home that was made into a little museum. 
Up in the attic of Dr. Cyril Burt's home, they find his original data. Oh my gosh, a treasure trove. We can't wait to take it back to our offices and look it over and have the time of our lives, maybe get some publications out of it. So they dug into Dr. Cyril Burt's treasure trove of data on this world-famous research, and they found that the good doctor had fudged his data. Yes, if you're listening, you heard that correctly. You can look it up and do your own research. Sir Dr. Cyril Burt had fudged his data. He was such a zealot for nature over nurture, and he wanted so much to prove to the world that schizophrenia, obsessive compulsive, and various other bipolar, they called it manic depressive then. He wanted so much to prove that they were biological in origin that he actually committed a fraud and fudged the data and published it and influenced, influenced tens of thousands of mental health workers around the world until this was exposed. That, sir, is a true story right out of the movies. <laughs> well, do you know how he fudged it? In what way? And Well, he manipulated the numbers to make it look like there were correlations amongst people who didn't have correlations. Mm. So, so if a guy, one of the twins was in Paris and one was in London and the one in Paris got schizophrenia, he would mark in the paper that the one in London got schizophrenia also when he didn't. Completely. It wasn't that complicated a fudge. What's that? Completely fraudulent. Then. It was fraudulent. It was fraudulent. Hmm. And we've been, and that has influenced the entire field. I've never heard that story. Thank you. And, 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 and the same, we have these kind of stories in, in both in medicine and psychology that are just phenomenal. There was one little tiny piece of something some many, many years ago that made some kind of an odd connection between marijuana and schizophrenia, and professionals all over the country bought into it. And it's totally bogus. Just like the same thing happened with LSD. Some, some uh, radio announcer uh, said about 50, 60 years ago, a guy named Art Linkletter, that his daughter jumped off a building and it was caused by LSD. And so the country went wild thinking if you took LSD, you would jump off of a building. And we have no incidents of, uh, in reality of such things happening. And we have no connection between marijuana and schizophrenia. And, we, and, and there's nothing to believe that identical twins have a high correlation for schizophrenia. So all of this really points in the direction of Robert Whitaker, who you have in your film, bringing us accurate information. But did he, did he go on uh, and talk to you quite a bit about the SSRIs? Uh, yeah, yeah, he did. But I, I, I do want to say something, Richard. Um, of everybody we interviewed um, in terms of the psychiatrists, psychologists, mental health workers, um, there was no one that said uh, that they weren't happy to at least have access to these medications in terms of a crisis. And the big problem was that they were being way overused, way overprescribed, especially to children, and that 
these were good. It was like they used the analogy of having a cast for a broken bone. It was good sometimes to stabilize a person until they could start being worked with on a more, um, uh, in a more therapeutic way without the medications. But during a crisis, sometimes you have to get to sleep. And sometimes people in a huge, very manic state need that relief of getting some sleep and medications can help with that. But um, yes, in terms of their use, they have been relied on and, and as a lifetime solution, the, the side effects of diabetes and other health consequences coming from the use of these meds typically shortens a person's life up to 20 to 25 years. So, uh, yes, I, 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 lo I love what you're saying, Phil. I love what you're saying about thinking of the medicines in the same way we think of a cast, because you wear a cast for six weeks and then you take it off. You don't wear a cast for the rest of your life. And right. some of these medicines do help a certain percentage and a certain percentage only of yeah. the people that they're administered to. That is accurate. However, I do want to bring into our conversation something else that I learned from our friend Robert Whitaker. And that is because of the biological origin belief still held by many in the uh, specialty of psychiatry, they believe that for example, using schizophrenia, that the person that has that has neurotransmitters which are out of balance and which the medications bring back into balance. And what Whitaker is pointing out to us that is so important is that, and you stated it a few moments ago, there is no evidence that people with these various conditions, better word, with these various conditions have neurotransmitters which are out of balance. So what happens is when, you t when they take these medicines, a certain percentage of them go out of balance because the medicines themselves put them out of balance since they weren't out of balance to begin with. Yeah. Then what happens is their bodies have to adjust to the new out of balance created by the medicine. Then fast forward, when they want to get off that medicine, if the doctor will allow them to, or they just jump off the medicine, the way the man that you photographed for six years, Adam, did, and just jumped off the medicine. And then all hell breaks loose, and they think it's because their symptoms are returning, but it's not because their symptoms are returning. It's because by no longer taking the medicine, they are no longer medicinally out of balance and they're coming back into balance. And that is such an adjustment that it makes them feel weird. Yeah. So it, it's a very complicated but, but crazy-making situation where your medicine itself makes you worse. And then when you come off the medicine, you feel worse because you're off the medicine that made you feel worse. Yeah, they're heavy withdrawal issues, Correct. like many drugs that psychoactive drugs that we take that are taken. 
Right. So they're basically going through withdrawal, but they think they're going crazy again. Well, that's what's going on. Yeah. So from Adam, I want you to now take us, and, and, and this film that you all want to see crazy making, and it's right available on your computer. Uh, you can go there, go to Phil Borges' uh, website just by typing in his name, B-O-R-G-E-S. I am pronouncing it correctly, I hope. Yeah, yeah you are. And okay, the good. quickest way to get it is crazywisefilm.com. 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 Thank you. So I want you to now take us from Adam to the Enduring Spirit, this beautiful book that I have, where you went around and tell us about what you did in terms of connecting and, 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 and bringing information forth on what's called mental illness and shamanism. Yeah. Well, um, so I was basically a human rights photographer. So I, one of my first projects was in Tibet, telling the story of the displacement of the Dalai Lama and the Tibetan people into India um, after Mao took over in 1949. So I was doing a lot of human rights stories in indigenous and tribal cultures around the world. And I began to meet their visionaries and their healers. And I was surprised to learn that almost every culture I've been in, and I've been in many in every continent around the world, there is someone who goes into an alternate state of consciousness, a non-ordinary state. I like to call them an extraordinary state of consciousness to perform their work as a healer or a visionary. And as I said earlier, I don't know how much we had that problem earlier. One of the first people I interviewed was the Oracle of Tibet, the Dalai Lama's Oracle, and watched him go into trance and then interviewed him and found out he was selected by having what we would call a psychological crisis. Hearing voices, having personality changes, mood swings, fainting spells, he thought he was dying. Um, and the monks around him realized that he had this special sensitivity and they brought him through a process to help him recognize that and work with his sensitivity. And now he's the most famous Kutin in the Tibetan culture. He lives right next to the Dalai Lama. But anyway, I began meeting these people in like the second woman I met was in the Samburu tribe in Northern Kenya. And she was a famous what they called a predictor and a healer. And she had a very similar story. At 14 years old, she started hearing voices, having visions, fainting spells. She thought she was dying. And her grandmother took her aside and told her she had a very special sensitivity and, and worked with her while she went through that. Well, that story I heard over and over again as I was doing my human rights work but I wasn't doing anything other than doing the interviews and taking a portrait of the individual. And uh, until I met Adam and I thought, here's a place where I can tie this all together. And what was being 
considered a special sensitivity, a gift, um, something the community could use and rely on in the individual. In our culture was being pathologized and considered a crippling disease. And so I just felt that that comparison had to be made. And um, that's how Crazy Wise started. Most of the, if not all of the um, uh, photographs uh, in your books, Enduring Spirit, and the other one here, uh, Empowered Women, are um, in Africa. Is that correct? Well, you know, they're pretty much all over. I mean, um, it's South America, Central America, uh, the Arctic, um, Indonesia, Irian Jaya, Cambodia, you know, Indochina, as well as Africa. But, uh, you know, it's pretty much, I was all over the place. And did you find evidence of people who had these extraordinary experiences and then was seen as shaman everywhere you went? Uh, in every tribe I went into, there was somebody that went into a non-ordinary state of consciousness, either by beating a drum, taking a psychoactive plant, uh, medicine, they call it, um, in, in one little group on the um, border of Pakistan and Afghanistan, there's a group called the Kalash that their, their healer burns, does a ceremony where they burn a fire of juniper, they sacrifice an animal, pour the blood of the animal over the juniper bushes, and the shaman ingests or inhales the smoke and goes into trance. So there's different ways of inducing those trance-like states, but every group had a way of inducing it. And in that altered state of consciousness, were able to do their work as a healer or a visionary. And I found that fascinating. How many people do you travel with when you do this, Phil? Uh, it depends on what I'm doing. Um, usually I'm traveling alone with an, one interpreter and one guide, a, a guide and interpreter. Sometimes when I was going way back in the bush, like in Irian Jaya, now called West Papua New Guinea, um, I would take porters to help carry the camera equipment and that sort of thing. But it was almost always local people. You know, I, I ended up hosting programs for National Geographic and Discovery Channel. Then we would have a crew, but it would be a very minimal crew, like cameraman, sound man, sometimes a director, sometimes not. Uh, one time we went deep into the Amazon with just a cameraman and a sound man. Sound man became the director and I was the host. So um, it was always with a minimal group of people. Is it dangerous work? Uh, no, no. It was dangerous going back into the city sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> but not dangerous in these various uh, places? You know, there was only one incidence in northern Kenya um, when there was a rumor of a cattle raid. You know, the, the tribes raid each other's cattle. Uh, and that's gone on for centuries. And they even consider it a benefit because they 
allows the cattle to crossbreed and be healthier. But there was a rumor of one of these raids, and they, they've gotten dangerous, mainly because of the war in the Sudan. Um, there's a lot of um, Kalashnikovs and, and various armaments brought in. But anyway, a tribal person can trade a cow for a Kalashnikov, and all of a sudden, they're walking around with a machine gun. Mm-hmm. And so um, there was a rumor one night that there was going to be a raid and I had to hightail it up into the hills to hide with a group of people. But other than that, no, I, I don't consider my work dangerous at all. And in terms of the people that you encountered uh, who became a shaman in their uh, local uh, culture, uh, was it pretty much even uh, males and females or more one gender than the other? No, I was pretty much, and I might have even been more females. Um, uh, so, and by the way, Richard, they're not called shaman in their, in their communities. In the Tibet, they've called a, a, a kutin. In um, Pakistan, they're a dehar. So there, there's different... Um, mm-hmm terminologies. That's our word. Our word shaman comes from uh, Siberia, where they're known as Sama. Mm -hmm. And I went there and interviewed um, the shaman there. And uh, by the way, they were all older women. And they had to go underground during the Soviet Union, because they weren't allowed to, there was no religion of any type allowed during the Soviet Union. When the Soviet Union broke apart in 89, these women all came out from doing their work underground and, and I got to meet them. I was there in um, 99. Is there any evidence of you run into any uh, males or females in what we call uh, Western cultures that are analogous to these uh, folks that you have found around the world? Well, you know, the um, Native Americans here um, uh, go into trance in their way to do mm-hmm. their work. And yeah, there's medicine men and medicine women. And um, the, you know, they used to drum a lot to, to do that. Uh, the Lakota up in northern parts of the U.S., they do the sun dance. And that's dancing four days, four nights without any food or water. And I've witnessed one of these while they're pierced and, and tied to a tree in the center of the center of the dance circle that they, at the end of it, break free from. And they're in an alternate, they're in a alternate state of consciousness after going through that. It's an intense ceremony. So there's different ways um, people have used through the centuries to, in my mind, tone down the dominance of the ego state, that piece of us that feels we're separate from everything else. Uh, And once that ego state is toned down, then they can tap into a much um, wider field of information. Let's put it that way. Yes, that's a whole nother discussion. Now, the, the, the folks you're talking about uh, in the Native American tribes, uh, yes, they go into those states through either the uh, ingestion or some uh, ceremony. 
But I I'm, wasn't clear in my question as to whether there uh, are analogous uh, people to those you found who had an experience, not through a drug experience and not through uh, some tribal ceremony, but more like Adam had, or many of the women and the men that you interviewed around the world had, where they had an experience, and the Dalai Lama example is a great one, uh, the Kutan, where they had an experience, and then as a result of the experience, became healers, if you will. Well, uh, because they were viewed in that way, they were seen in that way, and they were facilitated in the direction of using that unusual experience to become healers. Uh, is my question clear? Yeah, it's clear, Richard. I don't know if I can say I found anybody exactly like that, but what I have found, and I've interviewed many of people that have had a spontaneous experience that put them into a psychological crisis, and many that have successfully navigated it either with the help of someone or even on their own sometimes. And I can tell you this, when they've gone through it successfully, they come out the other end with a whole different relationship to the world, to, to the universe, if you will. They come out with much more a feeling of being much more connected and thus a feeling of much more compassion and empathy and basically that's what a good healer has is <laughs> a lot of compassion and empathy and unfortunately that isn't high doesn't get high attention in the medical schools but I think it is more so now than when I was in school but uh, so I could say there are a lot of people out there that have gone through this experience that have become healers in that they want to get involved in climate change. They want to get involved in helping in mental health facilities. They, they just want to start coming outside of their own needs and, and contributing in a way they didn't before their crisis. So in that way, I say, yes, I've met a lot of people that have become healers. They don't necessarily have a shingle out saying I'm a shaman, although a lot of people are doing that as well. <laughs> Dental uh, school is four years after college, correct? Right. And then to become an orthodontist, it's a specialty. How much? How many more years after dental school? It's typically two or three but I was at the University of California in San Francisco, UC Med Center, and they had a special program that ended with my class called Curriculum Two, where they took the two or three top students out of each class and let them specialize in orthodontics. So I got away without having to do that extra two or three years. So you were four years in college and four years in dental school, eight years of college. At right. least. I actually spent five years in undergraduate. Yeah. Okay. So you were at least nine years in college. Right. Tell us about the transition from nine years of college studying an exacting specialty 
to becoming a social issues photographer. <laughs> Not a usual path. <laughs> uh, no, but I happen to know a psychologist who's been practicing for decades now uh, in the Bay Area named Robert Cantor, who was a, uh, a dentist also and, uh, and became uh, a psychologist, a psychotherapist. So you uh, went from being a dentist to being a social issues photographer. So tell us, how, how does that happen? How did it happen to you? Well, I, you know, it, it was interesting. I, when I was in dental school, I was at UC Med Center. I graduated from UC Berkeley, went to the Med Center, and was living in the Haight-Ashbury during the 60s. And uh, I got a job, a work-study job, interviewing the hippies on the street because there was this huge hepatitis outbreak. And um, it, was, they were, it was such a change in culture that happened all of a sudden. And, it, and the Haight-Ashbury was kind of the epicenter of it. And these people were dressed in ways that we had never dressed before, growing the hair long, which we had never seen before, <laughs> in males anyway. And uh, I ended up interviewing people um, several times a week, and I got interested in doing portraits of them. So I started photography then, fell in love with it, uh, almost, uh, it was in... At times, I'd made a couple of movies at that time, and it was almost overtaking my dental school work. But when I got out of dental school, I had to pay all my student loans. I set, got my practice going. I joined a practice, actually, and, and was working in it and put everything aside, all my, dentist, all my photography aside. And when my son was born, I took pictures of him and did it in black and white, had to find a lab where I could develop everything. And there was a lab up in Napa, California, uh, a, a school that told me they had a dark room, but I had to take a class to use the dark room. I took this class from a guy named Ron Zach, who just really is an incredible teacher. Long story short, he inspired me so much. I sold my practice or my interest in the practice and moved up to Seattle and declared myself a photographer. So, wow. How many years did you practice dentistry? 18. Oh, okay. So this could be classified as a almost midlife change of career. Right. I was right. 44, 45. Yeah. Yeah. And that's inspirational. And that's part of the reason that I asked you about the change from uh, uh, dentistry to photography, a uh, social issues photography, uh, because we're in an era where people are considering, and many are being forced to make changes in their occupation. Whereas it used to be you got a job and you had that job for the rest of your life or a profession, and you had the profession the rest of your life. But now there's, there's more transition going on and your story is an inspirational story, uh, going from one uh, specialty to another. Now, within the field of, of photography, there are so many specialties in photography. You chose social issues. Tell us something about the background of how that came about. Right. So the first thing I did when I got up here to Seattle is 
establish myself somewhat as a photographer and started getting commercial jobs. But that took me three years. <laughs> so I was very nervous during that time because I had, you know, my son had just been born, our son, and it was like um, there was pressure to get things going again. I'd killed the golden goose where I was making a good living <laughs> as a, <laughs> an orthodontist. So anyway, I got my chops down doing commercial work. But really, my love has always been to travel and to go to these remote communities. I spent the glorious part of my youth on a ranch in Utah that was pretty much cut off from everything else. And we were pretty much living a subsistence lifestyle. Um, we grew all our own food and, and um, went to you town to get supplies maybe once or twice a month at the most. And so I had a, an affinity for people who lived close to the land. So I started just documenting indigenous and tribal people, and they all are facing some sort of issue in terms of governments encroaching on their land issues around getting education and, and just a lot of human rights issues. And so I started just doing um, stories on human rights. Now, the book you have, Enduring Spirit, there was, yeah, you're holding up women empowered. Enduring Spirit, um, that I did for Amnesty International when they celebrated the 50th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And that was in 1998 when it turned 50 years old and Amnesty wanted to do this big uh, rollout and rededication to the UDHR. And they wanted to get 10 million signatures. So I worked together with their, their um, communications department and we set up exhibitions and book signings uh, all over Northern America and Europe and a little bit down into South America. And the book, by the way, I'm, I'm looking at as, as you're speaking, uh, the, the introduction is by the great author, uh, Isabel Allende. And uh, I'd like the, uh, our, our listeners to know that the other book that I have in front of me that you were so generous in, in sending to me uh, called Women Empowered uh, has a forward by Madeleine Albright. Uh, so th these are, are, are really uh, wonderful, very serious books. W would you, uh, we're coming to the end of our time, Phil. I, I wonder if we might end by you telling a, a, a story or two about the women if there are some who stand out the most in your memory from having done so many of these photographer uh, photographs, are there some that, you know, that are just sort of oh, stand yeah. out? Yeah, please. Yeah. Well, what I wanted to do and what I've tried to do in all my work is to put out some inspirational, positive message that wraps around an issue that needs to be solved. And in terms of women and girls in the developing world, in terms of 
getting a chance at education or violence against women. There's just so many issues that I don't have time to go into if you want me to tell a story. Um, but uh, so I, I went around the world, found 29 women that I wanted to make uh, a story around to, to expose an issue. And one of them was female genital cutting. And uh, that's a story I'll tell. There was an area up in Ethiopia near Somalia, a group of people called the Afar. There's 1.2 million Afar people that practice the most severe form of FMG. And they almost scar the vagina shut with this and young girls at the age of 12. And it's a rite of passage that's been in place for thousands of years. And if a girl does not go through this ceremony, this rites of passage ceremony, she'll be considered unclean. She'll never be able to marry. She'll be ostracized from the community. So I heard about a group of women who had brought an end to the practice in their community. And Care assigned me an, a translator, and her name was Abai. And she was 28 years old when I met her. And she was taking me out to this community to introduce me to these brave women. And as we were going out, we took a Land Rover to get out there. It's very um, desert desert area. Um, as we were going out, she's telling me her story. And she said, when I was eight years old, I had a grand, a, a, a godfather, she called him, that told me, you know, if you go through this ceremony, it's going to really injure your body. It's not healthy. It's something you shouldn't do. And so when it came time for her ceremony, she told her mother she didn't want to do it. And her mother was just beside herself. She said, you've got to do it. You will be, you will just be an ostracized from the community. You won't be able to marry. Um, you've just got to do it. So Abai decides to run away and live with this godfather in Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia. And she gets an education and she decides she wants to, five years later, go back into the tribe and try to change the whole practice of FMG or end it. So she goes back, gets a job with care. She puts in a health clinic. She teaches the women how to start planting because they were mostly pastoralists. And um, so she gets a lot of programs going, gets the trust of the women and the men get upset because in that tribe, the men make all the decisions. The women do most of the work, and that's somewhat true around the world. Um, but there's a jerk of men that make the decisions, a little committee of 17 men in this village she lived in. And the men never see the circumcision ceremony. But the women do everything. So she ends up getting a camcorder, a very cheap little camcorder, and 
talks the women into letting her film one of these ceremonies. And she sent me that film and it's brutal. I mean, it makes your skin crawl to watch what they're doing with rusty knives in the dirt to these young girls in this ceremony, which is very sacred to them, but very harmful. Are they cutting off the labia? And the clitoris and I mean, they're just... Oh my gosh, more. So, and 12% of the young girls die from infection because of the ceremony. So she takes that film and she takes it to the men in their, one of their meetings and shows it to them. And they're horrified. They'd never seen anything like it. And they vote. I think the vote was 15 to 2 to bring an end to the ceremony in that village. And it was just such an amazing story that I, you know, when I had the, the book came out and the publisher Rizzoli wanted us to do this um, tour around the United States. And I was going to get a buy to come over. And Oprah wanted her on the program as well because she spoke English. It was pretty broken, but she spoke English well enough that you could really understand what she had to say. And um, unfortunately, the State Department wouldn't let her in the country. It was right after 9-11. And uh, they just, there were too many people coming in and staying and, and beyond their visa. So we couldn't, even with all the power that CARE had, and they had a lot of connections, we couldn't get her into the country. But anyway, she was one of the people that we had in the book. So in the book, there's a woman in Afghanistan that taught girls during the Taliban, which was a very dangerous thing to do because when the Taliban took over, all women were fired. Uh, Something like 50% of the civil servants were women. 70% of the doctors were women. Uh, The teachers, it was 60%. All gone from the workforce overnight. And so this woman fought the tide and she was teaching girls in her little, in her little um, two room house. (laughs) And she had 130 girls coming and going and the religious police would come and bang on the door. She would have the girls jump in front of sewing machines, ditch their books and let them in to look around. And and, uh, so it was, it was women like that that were breaking through the glass ceiling in some way, changing their, their um, bucking the tide of oppression on women and girls uh, that the book was centered around. That's amazing work. You've had a, a, remarkable, a remarkable life you've created for yourself. What's your next project as we finish up now? What's your next project, Bill? <laughs> what are you going to um, do? I'm, I'm writing about crazy wise because I, I you know it took a life on beyond so it's been out for three years mm-hmm. translated into 16 languages seen in 54 countries and I've been going around and I just talked to so many people now that have had these experiences and they're what I call a spiritual experience that what Adam said it was the first time I felt connected to the universe where I was it, it was me. 
It's a breakdown of that ego structure that allows more of a feeling of being connected to everyone and everything. Uh, unfortunately, if it's not managed and if the person doesn't understand what's happening, the ego comes back in an inflamed way and you can have all these paranoid states and uh, all the distress that comes with that shift in perception. And I've done a TED talk on this and there's a lot of people out there. It's now got like 4.3 or 4 million views. And um, so I know there's a lot of people that understand what this, what is going on when, when something like that happens or at least are wondering about what's going on. So I just want to make it clear because Crazy Wise doesn't get into the spiritual aspects of it as much as, and when I use the word spiritual, I mean a profound feeling of being interconnected and interdependent with everyone and everything. Indeed. There was a time in this country, Phil, when we, in, uh, in New England, when we used what was called moral treatment. It wasn't moral in terms of morality. It was moral in terms of building up, uh, treating them with, with righteous moralism. And instead of putting people ex uh, having these experiences in dungeons uh, that we call hospitals, mental hospitals, they took them to farms. And the success rate was phenomenal. And the, the healing rate was phenomenal. But uh, unfortunately, as with uh, many other things that happened, uh, happened in culture, uh, they went through a, a what we call NIMBY, uh, not in my backyard. Uh, people didn't want those uh, folks running around loose in farms right near other farms. And the whole moral treatment, it's called movement, went out of vogue. Wow. But I'm hoping that uh, we're going to see more of that. And I recommend very often when somebody's going through what Stan Groff calls, uh, who you had in your film, Dr. Stan Groff, a, a spiritual emergency, or in your words, which I like, I think, even better, an, uh, an extraordinary uh, psychological experience, that we'll see more people uh, moving to farms or spending time on farms and in nature, in rural areas where they can find peace with themselves. Where they can ground where they literally where they can grab that's the problem and this is the the um, ability of the shaman they've learned and been taught how to ground and then how to go back into those spaces yes for their work they so they have their feet in both worlds and can go back and forth and that's what we don't understand and and don't know how to teach well, as you continue with your work, let's stay in touch, and hopefully you'll come back and uh, share with our listeners more of what you're doing. Phil Borges, thank you so much for being on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics today. Thank you, Richard. I really enjoyed it. And thank you all for joining me for today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. And special thanks to our producer, Charlie Dice, our marketing director, Pamela Bieri, and our webmaster, James Albaro, whose teamwork make this broadcast possible. The preceding program, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, was brought to you by 
Thanksgiving coffee. Thanksgiving coffee started by my friend, Paul Katzev, who happens to be a social worker and a political activist. Paul has improved the lives of millions of coffee growers around the world by getting more of the money from the product to the growers, which they never got before. Paul has created three special mind, body, health, and politics coffee blends and donates 20% of all internet sales of these three special blends to the COVID Response Network. Go to Google, check out the COVID Response Network. It's a nonprofit 501c3 whose mission is to protect California's North Coast from COVID. It's a citizens action group. Check out the website, COVID Response Network, for all things COVID. Remember, it's a grassroots citizen organization which has made a significant contribution to sparing injury and saving lives. Just go to the Thanksgiving Coffee Company website and buy the Mind, Body, Health, and Politics coffee. Support the COVID Response Network. Please join me next Tuesday at 9 o'clock Pacific Standard Time for our next stimulating broadcast. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it is essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Thank you.